Welcome to your Active's Tech Brief Podcast. My name is Luca Bertuzzi, your technology editor. This week, we take a closer look at the Cyber Resilience Act and its impact on the open source software community. For an overview on all things technology in the EU, sign up to our free newsletter or visit the website youractive.com. This is your Active's Tech Brief Podcast. This episode is powered by Google. New research by Public First shows that generative AI could increase the size of the EU economy by 1.2 trillion euros and save the average worker over 70 hours a day. Find out more at googleintheeu.publicfirst.co. Today I'm joined by Bert Uber, IT developer, tech entrepreneur and former government regulator. Hi, Bert. Hello. Thank you for joining us. So you have been following the Cyber Resilience Act from the point of view of open source. You have been an influential voice uh, in this uh, area. Uh, How has the discussion around this topic evolved with time? Yeah, it has been a bit of a roller coaster. So initially there were worries that the Cyber Resilience Act Uh, would also attempt to regulate all open source developers. And that would be pretty bad because a lot of open source development is very innovative, but also does not come with a compliance department. And then for a while, the CRA had some nice words that said that the CRA is not meant to hamper open source software development and it should not stifle innovation. And then that language disappeared and it all became a bit worrying if small open source projects might even be in scope of the CRA. And and then the latest development has been that the Cyber Resilience Act is now attempting to explicitly regulate regulate parts of open source. So it has has been a bit of a roller coaster uh, ride. Right. So um, coming to the latest developments, uh, at Iraqi we reported earlier this week about... Uh, a tiered approach that is being discussed discussed in the context of Trilog uh, on the on the CRA, and this basically introduces the uh, persona of open source uh, software stewards. Uh, so uh, this would have uh, some targeted requirements and uh, try to balance off the idea of compliance uh, with that. Of, of innovation, compliance for, for security matters, of course. What is your view on, on this latest uh, approach? Yeah, so it's, it's good to realize that almost all software and hardware that we buy these days is majority powered by open source. So if you buy a phone or if you even if you buy a car, uh, by volume, most of the source code used for the software in that car or in that phone was in fact open source. Can you give us an example, uh, Bert, just to make it more concrete? Yeah, for you, it's very easy. Um, if you if you have an iPhone, for example, you can go to the settings and then to a phone and then to legal notes. And there you will find uh, like 5,000 screens listing every bit of open source that is part of an iPhone. And that list is so long that I do not know anyone that managed to scroll to the end of it. It might, in fact, be infinite. So whenever you uh, your your phone uh, renders or shows an image, 
that image was processed by an open source library. And, uh, and whenever you browse the web, there will be open source components used to do that. So a modern software or hardware vendor will typically add like 10% to an existing uh, collection of open source software programs. And that is then what they sell. And, and, and this is something that as a user, you're typically not aware of unless you manage to find the iPhone legal notices screen where you see these 5,000 open source software packages that form part of your phone. And this is not just for phones. Uh, I, I have a, a, a car. And, uh, and if you look in that car, uh, I can find the release notes for all the open source software that is part of the terrible entertainment system that is in there. And I've also asked around, no one is writing their own operating systems anymore. So whatever you buy, if it's a television uh, or a toaster, or maybe not a toaster, but almost everything you buy runs uh, a version of Linux, for example. I see. Um, so uh, back to this tiered approach. Um, what are we talking about? When What does it mean, uh, open source software uh, stewards yeah. or, or foundation? And can they comply with these uh, requirements that are being floated now? Yeah. So the idea is that it is easy for the uh, European Union to regulate car manufacturers, but it's not so easy to regulate hobby open source developers. So what they have done, they have said, look, if you ship a, uh, a phone, then as the, the vendor of that phone, you are on the hook for the Cyber Resilience Act compliance for the computer code, the source code that you wrote yourself. And you must also inspect or perform due diligence on all the components that you ship. Now, the majority of what people ship are, in fact, these open source components. Now, it is very difficult um, to regulate a hobby computer programming assembly. So if you are a bunch of people and you work together on your hobby project, you're not a legal entity, so the CRA cannot touch you. And what they invented now, I think in Brussels, is this concept of the open source software steward. Now, we have some very major pieces of open source software that are dominant, um, like, for example, the Linux kernel and, uh, or the Python programming language or uh, several other technologies. And the Brussels, in Brussels, they have defined that these major open source organizations will be called open source software stewards. And they will not fall under the entire Cyber Resilience Act, but they will nevertheless have to perform all kinds of things, which actually, well, it, it is a lot. It is a lot what they demand of these open source companies, like, for example, 24-7 uh, security monitoring um, and reporting of security incidents to the European Union. Um, so it is quite a lot. Right. So, um, as you were mentioning, Bert, the open source software is a main driver of innovation in, in the digital domain. At the same time, uh, we're also talking about a community that is generally allergic to regulation. Uh, so, you know, we are trying to balance here the, the right for people to, to buy safe products uh, with the with the right for uh, people to have their own hobbies or or also to being able to to be IT developers without having to go through all the hassle uh, of uh, regulatory compliance, 
and, and to innovate in this uh, freer way. So how, how, how do you strike a balance between these two? Yeah, so that is a good question. To begin with, it is not that the open source people specifically hate regulation. Um, everyone hates regulation. Right. Except Brussels, I have to say. Huh? Yeah, but the big difference here is that if I'm a, a manufacturer of phones, I can pass on the cost of regulation to my uh, customers. So I, it has somewhere to go. And, uh, and the open source people, for them, it's really a change of business. Like Apple already has a very large regulatory and compliance department, and they will just add some people to it. Um, but if there's an open source project that does, say, a speech processing or whatever, uh, they have previously not had a compliance department. Now, I'm very sensitive. If we conclude that uh, open source underlies uh, maybe 90% of the software in the devices that we buy, we must definitely work on increasing the security and the cyber resilience of open source. But the big question is, if, if in Brussels they say, here is a rather vague definition of an open source software steward, and we're going to lay down the law on you and tell you what you must do in quite a specific detail, it's not sure if these open source people will do that, because many of these open source foundations are actually not in Europe, they're in the US. And so then you have this, this Brussels effect that really works if you want to ship software to the European Union. But these open source projects, I think you would be far better off, and this is, a th I think, a key point, with not just laying down the law, what you expect from the open source people, but realizing that we need a mechanism in which the industry which relies to a vast extent of on open source, that they that industry cooperates with the open source world to in fact increase the security through uh, better procedures, better scans, more audits, all sponsored by industry. And it would be a far better way of increasing the net security to get such mechanisms in place than to only lay down the law and says, well, this is what the open source people must do now. Right. And, and I mean, since these have been a self-governing community, why hasn't this happened already? You know, regulators could say if you if you put something on the market, it needs to be safe. So if you don't have a business model to, to make it safe, you know, that's for you to figure it out. So, you know, what what is what is the consequence then of of putting this regulation in and, and as you say, sort of uh, overburdening the, the software, the open software? Software community. So it may, may be good to know that if, if I, I know people that bought a car and then after they bought it, they found out that their own open source software was part of that car and uh, which is a sort of nice honor. It feels nice to be driving your own software, uh, but it is a bit strange that a, a multi hundred billion euro uh, car vendor managed to ship a whole car and having no contact with the software, uh, open source software people that wrote the contents of that car. So there was no sponsorship, there was no um, support, there was no money changing hands. So we are really talking about a very uh, dysfunctional world where uh, all kinds of people fully depend on open source, but have so little contact with the open source people that they don't even know that their software is being used. To your point, if, if this open source software is so important, why, why has nothing been done yet? There's a, an interesting uh, precedent in the EU uh, because this is a problem that is not uh, only in software. 
there are also people that have their own they make their own food they grow their own food and they they give it to each other and they use seeds for that and at some point the eu said look there are uh, kinds of seeds that we don't want in europe and we want to regulate that and they wrote a law that would actually regulate your own garden that would prohibit you from from using seeds that you got from your neighbor and in fact the whole regulatory apparatus of the phytosanitary world would uh, descend on the people growing plants in their own garden. And that didn't work. That's where they said, look, we, we have to realize that there is a difference between regulating uh, big agriculture and regulating someone who grows food in their own garden. And that failed. And we are now sort of at a similar time where these many hobbyist programmers um, are actually writing the software that is running the world, but we have nothing... We have no way of improving what they do. And I think it's super important that we find a way of improving what they do. But uh, I don't think the current CRA is, is, do, is the right way to do it. So, I mean, do you think that parts of the industry are free riding on the open source uh, software community and that there should be like more uh, burden sharing uh, of, of the cost for, for example, to make this software safer? Yeah, I definitely think there should be. And this free writing is so idiotic. So I am myself an open source software author. And you actually get email from these large multi-billion or hundred billion dollar or euro companies that demand that you as an open source software developer supply them with documentation and certification that your free software is uh, fit for purpose. And if you then say, look, I'm not, I'm not going to prepare documents for you the big uh, Nasdaq listed corporations. And then they threaten you that they say, we're going to stop using your software, which is fine by me, but it, that it describes how dysfunctional this relationship is. One thing that could help tremendously is if the uh, governments and the EU can do more than just lay down the law, they could also uh, encourage industry to work with these open source people. And for example, say, look, it is not a, uh, anti-competitiveness issue if a bunch of car vendors come together to sponsor the uh, security of an open source project that are they are all relying on. It's not a, a cartel if you as an industry decide that you need to improve uh, the infrastructure on which you build. And I would far more love the car manufacturers and the phone manufacturers to engage with this open source community and, and maybe maybe even the, the professional companies can perform the audits and the checks that are required by the CRA, or at least almost required by the CRA. Um, and that will be a very productive thing to do, and it would turn the EU really into a, a force for good, because everyone would benefit if you improve the situation of open source. I see. Uh, at the same time, it seems to me that it's much more difficult what you are saying uh, than just putting, you know, requirements into law. So do you think if we come to the point where, let's say, this tiered approach uh, with the tailored requirements for stewards is passed, that the industry would say, okay, now we really have to to chip in and save this uh, open, software, uh, so open source software community. Uh, otherwise, you know, the, the, the toy would broke. So yeah, it is it is easier to to describe what everyone must do, um, but then for example, you should also make it very clear who these open source software stewards are. 
because as it stands, the definition is a bit vague. And uh, that means that people who we maybe would want to regard as open source software vendors don't know that the EU regards them as open source software vendors, and they might not undertake any action. And there's currently also no mechanism of, of finding out if the EU regards you as an open source software vendor, because you cannot get a, uh, sorry, steward, you cannot get a, a ruling on anything like that. You might only find out because you get an infringement letter. So I understand that it is it is easier to write down this concept of an open source software steward, but then there is a lot of work remaining to be done, how people would find out that they are such a uh, such an open source software steward and maybe uh, what help they could get because this, this uh, article on the open source software steward puts a lot of requirements on this steward. And um, well, I, I think many of the open source people I would know uh, would require a lot of help figuring out how to implement all these requirements. Right. Um, just to conclude, uh, Bert, what are the other problems? I know this is a very broad question, um, but what are the other problems you see with the CRA? The, the main problem is that the CRA is very much inspired on how we regulate uh, washing machines uh, or medical equipment where you have quite well-defined uh, devices and that we set rules. And for example, when you import certain goods into the, uh, the common market, then someone can validate if the washing machine adheres to the EU washing machine regulations. And it has been a massive success because washing machines used to be very unsafe and they're now very safe. So I can understand that they like this approach. But uh, the problem is that in the EU, there are so-called EU notified bodies that can check if your equipment conforms to the EU uh, legislation. And they have now taken that concept and extended it to software, where we suddenly have to have these EU notified bodies, of which there are not a lot, and many of them are specialized in medical equipment and washing machines. And they should now start testing the code of millions of products. And many of these products consist of millions and millions of lines of code. And we simply do not have an infrastructure, uh, the, the human capacity to perform all such tests on enormous amounts of software. And I think it's a good idea in, th in theory to say, well, we should start testing if the software is good enough. But the reality is that we are already have a huge shortage of software auditors and people to do this investigation. And now the EU piles on top of that a requirement to get tons of this software passed by the non-existent EU notified software bodies. So they are just simply not there yet. And I think that's the main, the main point of criticism I have on the CRA right now, that it, it lays down the law and it makes a good attempt. Um, but I can simply, even with the best will, I cannot envision how we're actually going to do this. And that will ruin the law. Because if the law, if, if the law is not practicable, then you cannot tell people you must get your software approved by the EU notified bodies. And by the way, the EU notified bodies have no time for you. And that's a fatal, I think that's a fatal problem of the law. Yeah, I mean, um, what you said, uh, it's very interesting what you said about uh, medical devices indeed. Uh, a uh, new legislative framework draws from that area and it's quite curious to see that also in that area you have 
um, quite a few bottlenecks in terms of notified bodies. So probably this will be uh, at the implementation level one of the hardest part of, of the CRA. Good luck. Bert Huber is an IT developer, tech entrepreneur, and a former public regulator. Thank you, Bert. Thank you. That's all we got time for this week. Don't forget to sign up to our free Tech Brief newsletter to stay on top of tech news and digital policy developments in the EU and beyond. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast published on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. I'm Luca Bertuzzi, and thank you for listening. Thank you.